The reality today is people are living for the moment. People live for the moment. I think so many relationships and so much about love and marriage and passion is all, it's all boiled down to, it's about the moment. You know, you might remember that moment or, you know, that moment just felt so right. I just knew that it, that, you know, he or she was the one that it was, this is going to be forever. That moment your heart raced um, for men or for, for ladies, you know, your heart fluttered. No self-respecting man has ever had a flutter in his heart. Okay, our hearts race. They don't flutter. Ladies, your hearts might flutter, but, um, and they might race, but, but men, we don't, we don't, there's no fluttering going on in my heart. But what it regards, you had that kind of moment there, and time stood still, and doves flew through the air, and music was playing in the background, and, and you know, it, it was the moment. And that's kind of the thought of the me marriage we're always looking for. We're chasing after the moment that's going to satisfy, it's going to quench, that's going to recreate that moment in the past, and we're always looking for the next moment. And the reality is that trying to reproduce that moment really just becomes very difficult. And that's really not the pattern that we're given in the Word of God. And I will say this, regardless of what you think about Jesus and the Bible, whether you respect it or not, uh, you can totally not agree with or believe the Bible is the Word of God. But if you would just simply take the principles given in the Bible for marriage and for relationships, you would be light years ahead of the rest of the world's philosophies. If you'll just take that, there's, led, there's a lot of marriages out there that have some healthy things about them. And you look, and they might not even know Jesus, but they have a good marriage. And if you begin to look at their marriage, what you'll more often than not discover is they are, they're living out, whether they know it or not, often biblical principles. And so these are, these are transferable no matter what the situation, because God created love, he created marriage, and he knows how it's going to work best. And to the degree that we live according to his uh, plan, we're going to have the healthiest marriage possible. And so foundations and fences, when you build the right foundation, you build the right fences, they're going to create a, an environment where a lifetime of honestly lasting, increasingly meaningful moments will really begin to thrive. Sociologists have said uh, that 35th year of marriage is, is rated as being the highest, the happiest year of marriage. And they've said also that it takes about 9 to 14 years in a healthy marriage on average for a couple to move past the me to the we and to start to think about their spouse in unselfish ways, which is, again, another attribute of why the me marriage is a myth just not going to work. And what often happens for many couples, they don't make it to the ninth or 14th year. So they say, this is just not going to, it's not the me marriage I looked for, I was hoping for, I can't keep reproducing the moment. So this is, let's just walk away. And they walk away and then they start the clock over in a new marriage with more baggage. Like that's going to help, right? And so then they go and it's just a whole nother trudging through another nine to 14 years before they get past the me-centric centricity of their relationships to seeing the needs of the other people. And, and the Bible is attributing, it's giving us some ideas of something that's far beyond that, that, that grows and flourishes and, and blossoms. And, and a lot of the imagery in Song of Songs and Song of Solomon is that of a garden. And, and we see the long-term fruit. That's the goal and the heartbeat of this. Uh, C.S. Lewis, Gary Thomas and Sacred Marriage, a great book I highly recommend. But he references C.S. Lewis in a book called Screwtape Letters. In Screwtape Letters, you have a, a demon named Screwtape speaking to his nephew demon and explaining to him how to cause trouble in his uh, patient, his person's life that he is kind of committed to and he's trying to wreck this guy's life. And so here's one of the things he says in regarding to relationships. 
humans who do not have the gift of sexual abstinence, which angels and demons do, can be deterred from seeking marriage as a solution for their desires and for, you know, for a solution for love and for physical fulfillment, intimacy, because they do not find themselves in love. They can be deterred from seeking marriage as a fulfillment for that because they don't find themselves in love. And thanks to us, the demons, the idea of marrying with any other motive seems to them low and cynical. They regard the intention of loyalty to a partnership for mutual help, for the preservation of chastity, and for the transmission of life as something lower than a storm of emotion. Let me say that again, that last line. They regard the intention of loyalty to a partner, partnership for mutual help, preservation of chastity, and the transmission of life as something lower than a storm of emotion. The world has sold us in what C.S. Lewis is saying like 80 years ago, the demonic lie. The world has sold to us the lie that if you're looking for true love, what you need is a storm of emotions. That's where it is at. And what he's saying is that that, that is a foreign concept to the Bible. The emotions are there. Passions are there. And we'll see that in this book. But that's not the foundation that we are pursuing. So turn with me in Song of Solomon chapter chapter 1, verse 15. We'll pick up in 15 towards the end of chapter 1. And then we'll get into some of chapter 2 this morning. And it reads this, verse 15. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. So he says to her, you're beautiful. Your eyes are like doves. She responds, behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. And she says, I am a rose, chapter 2, verse 1, of Sharon. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among the brambles, or the thorns, so is my love among the young women, he responds, verse 2. And then she says in verse 3, as an apple tree among the tree of forest, so is my beloved. And among the young men, with great delight, I sat in his shadows, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. His, he has brought me into his banqueting house. His banner over me is, his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. And then verse 7, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until she pleases. The voice of my beloved. Behold, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle, a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come with come away. And then he says, O oh, my dove, in the cleft of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, 
Let me see your face and let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyard, for our vineyards are in blossom. We'll stop there. In these verses, there's a series of things that are mentioned that are helpful for us to consider this morning. I want to review for you um, briefly this in summary. Song of Solomon is teaching us two great truths. The first one is God's perfect plan for intimacy between a man and a woman. God has a perfect plan after the Garden of Eden, after the fall and sin enters into the world, and the perfect marriage and the perfect relationship fell apart, and dysfunction entered the first marriage between Adam and Eve, uh, and every marriage after that has a series of challenges, namely sin, to deal with. How, how can we get back to, um, could we ever experience the intimacy and the um, mutual commitment, the love that we had, that, that there was in that first marriage? Yeah, to a degree, yes. And so God has a perfect plan for intimacy between a man and a woman, and Song of Solomon gives us a beautiful picture of that. Secondly, this this book also teaches us this, and for some of you, you're going, you know, I don't really know that the marriage thing is really what I'm I'm here for. I'm not really, that doesn't relate to me, or I don't really care about that, or whatever. Well, but all of us, this second part is relevant. God has given marriage as a gift for three things. Number one, the purpose behind marriage is for companionship, certainly. And that's the first point there. Number two, the purpose for marriage, this isn't in your notes, by the way. The purpose, the second purpose for marriage is for reproduction, okay? Be fruitful and multiply. That's the second purpose of marriage. Thirdly, marriage is meant to picture Christ and his church or God and his passion for his nation, for his people, Israel, and, and eventually now is his passion for his church, where God is redeeming a bride for himself. He's purifying a bride for himself. He is, he is pursuing and preparing a place for a bride for himself. That's the church. And so all those who will repent and, and trust in Jesus can be part of that bride. You, this morning, if you don't know Jesus, you can be part of the bride, the church. If you are a follower of Christ, then you are part of the bride, the church. And Jesus one day is going to come back for his bride to get her. And he's going to take her to a banquet feast that is going to be incredible, unbelievable banquet in heaven. And all of us are invited, but the only ones who come are those who humble themselves and say, I'm not worthy to be in this relationship. I'm not worthy to, I I am, I am filthy. I'm disgusting. I'm dirty. God, you can't have me at your table. I don't deserve to be in that room. And he says, oh, I, I have provided purification for you. I have given you clean clothes. I have given you a new name. I have provided a way through my son that you can come in a right relationship to me, in, in, into a right relationship with me, and you can be forever my bride for not just a moment, but for eternity. And that's the picture of Song of Solomon, this relentless passion that God has for us, his children. The foundation of love is certainly mutual satisfaction. True satisfaction demands a commitment, exclusivity. True love must be cultivated, and that's what we're continuing to build on this morning as we look at these foundations of cultivating a lasting love. How do we create a foundation for lasting love? Well, firstly, we we need to learn a couple things. Learn a couple things. The foundation for love is, first of all, recognizing greatest need of a woman is love, to be cherished, to be loved, to be cared for. Greatest need for a man is ultimately respect, which is why in Ephesians chapter 5, 
the, the beautiful teaching on marriage, men are commanded to love their wives, and wives, you are not commanded to love your husband. You don't have to love him. It's not necessary. You don't have to do that. Okay, it's, I'm just saying, that's what the text said. It doesn't tell you to love, but it does command wives to respect their husbands as unto the Lord. And their respect for the Lord, they respect their husbands. And that's the greater need for your husband. That's the greater need for men is to be respected. And that's how they communicate. They feel loved is through that respect. Understanding that, number one, man, we need to learn to cherish our wives. Learn to cherish your wife. Verse 15, he says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Your eyes are doves. Again, all of the imagery in this, the, the Hebrew poetry is not to be taken literally like he looks and he sees birds. When he looks in our eyes, there's these two, um, you know, two birds that are uh, flying or whatever. And I mean, that maybe their eyes are kind of a little crazy, you know, or I, I don't know what. Now, it's, it's, they're communicating um, attributes of, of her beauty. And so they're descriptive in attributes that he sees or she sees in him and beautiful uh, poetic language. And that's one of the challenges um, in this book. Later on, he's going to actually describe it. He's going to say, your, your legs are like cedar trees. Okay, it's best, gentlemen, don't use that on your wife. Don't, don't be like, you know, that's a great line. I like that. You know, honey, you, you, your legs are like cedar trees. And she'd be like, oh, you've been memorizing Bible. Okay, you know, why don't you eat it? All right. Um, it won't go well for you. Don't say that. But, uh, but there are some things to learn from here. So behold, you are beautiful, my love. You are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. So, so men, learn to cherish your wives. Uh, you know, what are some of the attributes of doves? Well, they're, they're beautiful. They're soft. They're pure. They're delicate. They are um, skittish. They're faithful. And to one mate for life, doves are. And so there's a imagery and, and some, some thoughts there that are, that are beautiful. But uh, he is told to cherish his wife. And, and as we read on, there's going to be some other points in the next few verses that are going to go back to that bigger point. Cherish your wife. But I want to jump uh, chronologically to the next thought, and that is that, uh, that ladies, wives, you want to learn to respect your husband. Learn to respect your husband. Why, why is that? Well, she says, Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. The rafters are pine. This is not, she's not envisioning a, a chickified house, okay? This isn't, this isn't, you know, potpourri and pink. You know, she's looking at him, and she's like, you're a man's man. And uh, when I think of her house, it looks like the outdoors. And so um, if you guys are trying to think about how to redo your living rooms and things like that, and you want to look to the Bible for some insights right there, that's a suggestion. It'd probably be more biblical to have like a log cabin or something like that is what he's saying. That's a joke. I'm joking. That's a joke. But there are some truths that we can pull out of this. And as we look at how does she respect her husband and why would she respect her husband, we'll see that in these these points to come. And so let's continue working through the passage, and it will kind of unpack these a little more in a little more detail. And so building on these, we want to see the fruit of healthy roles and relationships. What are some of the fruits of a healthy, healthy roles and relationships in a marriage? For one, there's a desire for adventure. There's a desire for adventure, and that's really what that statement is saying, our couch is green, uh, the beams of our house are cedar, the rafters 
uh, our, our pine, it seems like they're almost on an outdoor excursion, and she's envisioning going away and spending time with her husband-to-be. They seem to be engaged at this moment. Uh, again, another little note here. Sometimes, Song of Solomon, we're going to get in the next couple weeks, there's going to be an engagement, and then there's the honeymoon. We'll talk about the honeymoon Friday night. Then they have a fight, and then they have the deepening of love, and that's kind of how the rest of the book goes. And so there's, there's some back and forth, but there's this seeking and then trying to find each other, and they find each other, and then there's distance, and there's separation, a desire to come back together, and she's seeking after him, and he's seeking after her, and there's this give and take, and then they find each other, and then there's a separation, and then they come back, and that's kind of the way that love and a healthy marriage is. There's seasons, and there's times of, of um, there's different seasons in marriage, and different rhythms in marriage, and different experiences, but they all together come in this open-ended expression of a desire to know somebody more deeply, to know somebody more deeply. And so there's a desire, there's a desire for a deepening love, a continuous seeking and a finding throughout this poetry. And we see that in this adventure here in verses 16 and 17. She respects him. She wants to spend more time. She wants to jump into this adventure more deeply. And then in chapter two, verse one, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. She, she looks at herself and she says, look, I, I'm just one flower in a meadow of flowers. I'm just a lily in the valley of lilies. I'm just another flower. I mean, I, flowers are pretty. I'm pretty, but I'm not. I mean, I'm just like any. I'm just ordinary, just like every other girl. That's really no. And he says to her, no, as a lily among brambles or thorns, he disputes her claim. She says, I'm unworthy of your admiration, she's self-depreciating. She's kind of lowering herself down. And, and then he says to her, no, no, I, I look at you and I see that you are unique and you're beautiful and, and all those who I would compare you to, they're like thorns in a field. You're a flower among thorns. That's what you are. And she's saying, no, I'm a flower among many flowers. I'm just another flower. And he's going, no, no, you're a flower among thorns. There's some wisdom for us men in cherishing our wives, in cherishing our wives, in caring for our wives, in pursuing our wives. Something for us to consider and for something for us to think about is that the rarity of a flower in contrast to thorn and thickets. I, I don't know if you've ever been hiking in the Appalachian Mountains and this area. You know, if you get off the trail, Pretty quickly, you're going to get caught in thickets, okay, particularly in summertime and springtime. I don't know if you've ever gotten caught in thickets. You've been off-road, and you're going through, and it's just really, you just, it's very uncomfortable. It's really difficult, and you, you just, once you hit them, it's tedious, and you're getting scratched and torn apart, and your clothes are getting torn, and it's really difficult trying to get through that stuff. And, and, and so there's a picture for us uh, of, of the sanctity and the purity of marriage and the covenant we have with our wives and the importance of protecting and staying with the rose that God has gifted us with rather than chasing after false substitutes. Proverbs says it this way. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27 says, Can a man carry fire? Can a man embrace fire next to his chest and, a, and his clothes not be burned? 
In other words, he's saying, can you run after men? If you run after the prostitute or the, the um, dangerous woman or the adulterous w- woman, you run after her, it's like going to a bonfire and picking up a bunch of logs and holding on to them and carrying them down the road for a while. Okay? It's, you're not going to come away without scars. You're not going to come away without deeply regretting the moment that you picked up the fire and you thought this would be a great moment. And, and, and you'll, you'll remember that moment, but you're going to remember it in a bad way. It will steal from you life. It will bring about consequences. It will bring about scars. It will destroy you. Don't go there. Stay out of the thorns. Stick with the flower. God's gifted you with a beautiful flower. Do not chase after what you think is going to satisfy when it will only destroy. He says, as a lily among the brambles... So is my love among the young women. Next, he, uh, we, we see not only uh, the desire for adventure, but she finds security and safety. She looks at him and she says, As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. She finds security and safety. With him, you, you think of an apple tree. Hot day. You're outside, um, and and you see a big apple tree. Well, that's a great place to go to find some shade. That's a great place to be refreshed. I mean, apples are refreshing. And so she, she looks at him, and she sees him as a place of safety. She sees him as being one who represents safety, security, protection, nourishment, provision. All of those things. I'd say, man, are you that kind of guy? Do you create an environment for your wife and for your family, for that matter, that you bring about? You give her the freedom to feel safe, to feel secure, to feel protected. That's the kind of guy that uh, she sees her beloved to be, and that's the kind of guy that he was. For those of you who are single, make a list of non-negotiable or negotiables and non-negotiables. So who are you looking for, praying for, that God would bring in your life in his timing? What kind of person are you looking for for a spouse? And so it's important to know what you're looking for. So negotiables, okay, would be uh, physical attributes, beauty. That might be negotiable, ladies. You might say, well, that he's going to be tall or that he's going to be short or that he's going to be strong or that he's going to be not strong. I mean, kind of geeky, scrawny guys, geeky looking, scrawny. That's kind of what's hot now. That's negotiables. So, um, so the negotiable. Then, what's a non-negotiable? And these are the things you don't, you can't compromise on. They know Jesus. They have a track record of walking with Jesus. If they walked with Jesus before they knew you, then they'll walk with Jesus after you. If they didn't walk with Jesus until you started coming around, and now they're walking with Jesus because that's what you expect of them, and now they're doing the, whatever you ask. Well, then, who's really their God? Who's really the one they're living for? And so, it is wise to step back and give, create the space for God to do his work without you trying to help him. He doesn't need you. The third person of the tree, the Holy Spirit, does a great job without your help, okay? And so let the Holy Spirit do his work in a person's life, cultivating, bring them to salvation, maturing them, and you just step back and pray for them. But don't jump in there. And by the way, you can fall in love with the wrong kind of person as easy as you can fall in love with the right kind of person. So you just step back, let God work, be careful of that. But make a list of negotiables, non-negotiables, and then cling to that and pray for that, uh, that person and, and look for the right kind of person. And in God's timing, you can trust God that he will work there and bring that person in. But do not compromise. What kind of guy? One of those non-negotiables will be, is, is this guy respectable? One of the questions Janet would ask uh, discipling 
uh, college girls through the years and, and young singles through the years, she would ask them when they were getting in a serious relationship, do you really respect this guy? Can you respect, do you respect his walk with God? Do you, res- do you really respect his character? Do you really respect and can you follow his leadership? Um, and some ladies, there's a, a high control element, possibly, maybe, hypothetically, in your personality. And, um, and it's, it's you, what you respect is what you can control. And I would encourage you not to respect what you can control. I would, I would encourage you to, to look for the kind of guy that you can freely yield yourself to and that you really would trust him and respect him. Doesn't mean that you can't help him do some things better. Fine. You can help straighten some out some things. Fine. You can make sure he, he doesn't, you know, uh, whatever. You, you help him out, that's great. But can do you respect him? And is he this kind of guy? Is he an apple tree? Does he provide security and safety and provision and protection and all those things? Uh, the next thought in this passage, verse 4, he brought me to the banqueting house. And his banner over me is love. And so there is a desire for escape here not only adventure but escape he has brought me into his banquet house she wants to spend more time with him she wants to celebrate life with him she wants to to celebrate their love together she's he has brought me into his banqueting house he's brought me into the place of his provision his bounty and, and i am i'm long for that i enjoy that I'm, I'm looking for that that's another thought we find in this passage and then the last two things on this uh, there's a desire to belong. He, she says, his banner over me is love. What this is clearly uh, a reference to, most commentators would highlight this as a picture of an army with banners. An army with banners. And the banner would signify the God of the army that's fighting. It would signify the division of the army and their country, their nationality, and a bunch of different things. There's a lot of stuff communicated on that banner, but it marks that army being with whatever nation and whatever God and whatever troop that they're fighting for. And so she's looking at herself and she's saying, he has marked me with his love and his banner over me is not selfishness. It's not control. It's not some domination, he's marked me and I'm his and he dominated and I'm just kind of stuck in this relationship and I want, it's not control, it's love. It's marked me by his unconditional love for me. And so she desires to belong to him and to be marked by him because he's an apple tree and because he is respectable and because he is tender, he cherishes her. She wants to escape with him. She wants to belong with him, and she desires to be close to him. She desires to have closeness. She romanticizes his tender touch. Verse 6, his left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I mentioned last week, and these are generalizations, but generally they, they seem to be true, and research has upheld these. Men, generally speaking, are sight-oriented. Men are just wired. God has wired us in a way that we're sight oriented. And so men, they recognize, they see beauty. They see their wife, ladies in general. And it's kind of like just seeing a car driving down the street. You know, that's a cool looking car. That Men are just kind of hardwired to, to recognize the form and the shape of, of, of uh, you know, sports cars and cool trucks and things like that. And then also uh, of, of women. 
And so uh, that's just indicative. There's a book uh, for men only and then a book called For Women Only by Shanti Feldham. I would highly recommend them for uh, you and uh, your spouse to read, to understand the thinking of the other one. And so she's got a chapter in there uh, for the women only, talking, helping them understand the craziness of a man's brain. And then there's like um, there's six volumes, actually, for husbands to understand their wife. And so and it's I'm just kidding. There's the same size book, same size book. It's the same size. It would be helpful to understand that. It, but one of the traits that you find that seems to be true of, of uh, women is that they are touch-oriented. Um, you know, everybody battles with the mind and the purity of the mind. And men tend to fall in the trap of pursuing worldly images and, and uh, filling their brain. Many men are addicted to pornography and struggling and battle with that, filling their brain with images because they're visually sight-oriented. Women, that's not so much of an issue, though there's a growing trend among women in that area also, but women tend to find the romance novels. You go asking men, how many of you have read romance novels, and you're not going to get very many hands raised. Men don't read romance novels. They want to see things blown up and killed and died and blood and things like that, competition, conquering. Um, but women, you know, there's the romance novel. Well, hello, Fifty Shades of Grey. I mean, good night. How in the world did that thing, you know, hit the levels that it did? And then even a lot of Christian women running to that. Try, I mean, what is going on with our hypersexualized country and world and among Christians? I mean, you don't have to go to the world to find this stuff, man. God has provided a uh, way sufficient, beautiful, wonderful way for us to experience all of the different elements that he has provided for us in a uh, exclusive, God-honoring relationship marriage. But we have so often settled for far less than what God has for us. And all he's brought is discontentment and destruction in our lives. And so women tend to be uh, touch-oriented, and she desires his closeness, which is uh, something to say, men, you, you know, keep your hands off of other women. You've got to be really careful with your boundaries and how you interact and what you communicate verbally and what you communicate with touch. And ladies, you've got to guard your hearts by the stuff. Don't romanticize it. Put images and look for uh, verbal pornography through books and movies and different things that create this is what the perfect marriage would be. If I just had a guy like this, he would be like, if he was just, if my husband was really, that is the same thing men struggle with in a different way, and those are both ditches that will destroy the foundation for a healthy marriage. And we're going to get in a little bit more next week when we talk about fences in our, in our marriages. But the last thought I want to uh, give you is that uh, beware of forcing love, beware of um, discontent, beware of forcing love. This is the last part, and this is actually the first of several warnings in this book, and this is where we're going to end this morning. Verse 7, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. This is a warning in this book. All this beautiful stuff about love and passion and intimate language and all this stuff, and then there's this spot right here, and this is where you've got to be careful how you teach this book in the church, because you don't want to violate this verse. Here's what it says. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. You better be careful. Don't stoke the fires that don't need to be stoked. Something that we need to think about in our lives. Beware of forcing love. Do not force love prematurely. Uh, secondly, beware of discontentment. Discontentment. There's three reasons why discontentment builds and disillusionment builds in people's lives. Uh, the first one is that we don't get what we wanted. What happens for so many people? 
So many men, so many women, is we, we long for something that <coughs> we, just, we just don't get. We want it. And if, if we just think, if I, if I just get this thing, kids, you struggle with this, teenagers, you struggle with this. If I get this gift, if I get this new phone, if I get this new relationship, if I get, if I get this, once I get this marriage, once I'm married, then I'm going to be. And, and so we long for something, and, we, and it doesn't come, and we are disillusioned, and we're discontent because we didn't get the thing we wanted. But the second reason for disillusionment in many people's lives is we actually do get what we wanted. <laughs> what happens when you get what you wanted? Man, I so wanted that gift. I knew it was going to be the perfect gift, the perfect whatever, and I got it. And then you get it, and you're like, nah, no, no. it's not what I thought it was going to be. It's not as easy. It's not as, uh, you know, uh, it's like when you get a pet. You know, we got a dog. Kids wanted a dog. Everybody wants a dog. We're going to get a dog. And I'm going, I don't think we need a dog. It's not a good idea to get a dog. And now it's like, would somebody please walk the dog? Can somebody feed the, all of those of you that wanted a dog, which is not me, um, would you please take care of the dog? You know, and so we wanted something. We didn't have it, and we were discontent. And then we got something we really wanted, and now we're still discontent. Well, we, dog, uh, just need this and need that and whatever. It's never, and that's the same way we are in marriages and all of our relationships. The things we always wanted is simply not what we thought they were. And that's because the book of Ecclesiastes says, Vanity of vanities. All the stuff of this world, all the things of this world are temporary. They're vanity. What is vanity? Vanity is what's left after you pop a bubble. That's what vanity is. And we look at this big shiny bubble of all the things that this world's going to offer us, and it might be marriage, and it might be kids, and it might be a pet dog or whatever, and it's floating by. We're just like, oh, if I could just have that. And then, and then you go and you go to grab it, and it pops, and you go, oh, I guess that really can't sustain me no there's nothing in this world that ultimately is going to sustain us which leads to the third reason for disillusionment and that is that we settle for substitutes we pursue distractions we pursue diversions we live a life of denial trying to find that thing that if i just get it that'll that'll satisfy me life will be better everything will be perfect and it it never really works that way and so the application for us to think about in this we want to consider what is the root of my unhappiness. If you're unhappy, if you're discontent, if you feel disillusioned, what is it that you really are looking for? Get past the thing that you wanted, that you got that didn't satisfy, or the thing that you don't have yet that you think is going to satisfy, or to use some discernment and think about what are the things I'm pursuing that are, are false saviors that really aren't going to provide the peace and the um, the love and the salvation and the hope and the end of all my misery in the way that only Christ can, can satisfy. Learn the secret of contentment. Learn the difference bet- between desire and contentment. Desire is not necessarily bad to desire things, but there's a point where we need to know that we're not looking to those things to satisfy what only Christ can satisfy. And so be discerning about that. The last section, these last few verses in this, the expression of love. A few quick things that he gives us here. Verse 8, the voice of my beloved. Behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains. Behold, uh, bounding over the hills. The, the voice, she hears his voice, and she sees him coming. And so you see love expressed. And interestingly enough, this is not love expressed through physical intimacy or physical passion, but this is love expressed first and foremost through actions he pursues her he's spending time with her and that that pursuit of time is something that that expresses love and it builds a foundation for a healthy uh, relationship the voice of my beloved behold he's comes leaping over the mountains bounding over the hills he's coming for 
She's excited about being able to spend time with him. And then secondly, my beloved is like the gazelles, the young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. He's looking for her. She's looking for him. Love is expressed in the eyes. In the eyes. Watch your eyes. Watch your eyes. Maybe you guys have probably seen that commercial. I, I don't remember who. It's a cell phone or something. And a guy's kind of checking out his, he's looking on his cell phone, and, and a girl comes walking, and she walks by, and he's eating with his girlfriend or whatever out on a, on a uh, cafe or something outdoors, and, and he's kind of checking the girl out. And it was, I guess, advertising that your cell phone could look like a mirror. Great. That's wonderful. And he's kind of watching the girl going by. Watch your eyes. Girlfriend, wife gets mad at him and slaps him and ends that relationship. It was a moment. Love is expressed your eyes. It's expressed in the exclusivity of your eyes. It's expressed in your focus. I mean, figuratively and literally, there's a lot to be said about the eyes that we could explore, but just think about that. And she's looking for him. She's peering after him. I, you know, I, one of the things, one of the first things I noticed about Janet when we were getting to know each other a little bit, and I, I sat down with her, and we've been spending time. It's starting to get awkward because it's kind of like there's, I think there's more here than just, you know, just being friends and you know, there's, and so we defined the relationship called the DTR. So we had the DTR. We're in college. We're, you know, at age of this. We weren't like uh, seventh graders. Okay. And so we're, we're having our DTR. And I, and I said, you know, um, I, I've, um, you know, I've been watching you and uh, observing you from a distance. And I, and I, I remember thinking in my head, that could sound really creepy and weird. <laughs> you know, and fortunately, she didn't take it that way. I watched the way she interacted with other people. I watched the way that she would encourage other people. I would watch the way she would serve and, and invest in young girls and trying to win them to Christ and disciple them and spend time with them and, and, and how much of an encourager she was to other people. And I, as I saw that in her life and I observed that, I was just, uh, it, it was awesome for me. And I'm, I'm observing, I'm watching, and she's watching and, and learning. But I went through my whole big speech about how wonderful she is and how, and I'd love the opportunity to spend more time with her. And she said, well, thank you. That's very encouraging. I said, and you feel like, and you're thinking, and your response to this, it, and you, and she, you know, she wasn't really hitting the ball back. I'll give you more Friday night. We'll talk more about that. All right, I'll leave you hanging. But love is expressed through eyes. Um, love is expressed through words. Behold, he speaks and says to me, my beloved, speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. He, he expresses love in words. Uh, in, in conclusion, last thought I want to give you just for an application. Okay, this is also a question for you to ask about your children or to your children in your family. This is a good question to ask for good friends. How can I best express my love? I understand that the way you communicate love and the way you receive love um, is going to be, or your, way your, your spouse or other, your family members are going to receive love is going to be different. Uh, Gary Chapman wrote a book, Five Love Languages, and he mentioned uh, words, gifts, Service, time, and touch. Five different ways we express love. Words, words of, of kindness and encouragement, gifts, uh, service, serving somebody, spending time, touch. Those are five of the love language. And chances are you and your spouse probably have different love languages. Instead of trying to love them the way you like to be loved, learn how they like to be loved and learn to communicate love outside of physical intimacy, which is why this list is beautiful to look at these different ways that it's expressed through actions and eyes and words and, and the different languages, the ways we can communicate um, with our lives to our spouse. Uh, I want to say finally that, that as we look at these realities, 
and we turn our eyes back to the most beautiful picture that marriage points to, and that is Christ in us, what we understand is um, two things. Only Jesus is going to satisfy the deep longings in your life. If we pursue after the things of this world, relationships of this world, uh, we're going to be disappointed. And so getting past the me marriage and living for the moment and building a foundation for the future comes with first building a foundation or, or repenting and trusting in Christ so that we can have the foundation for eternity, not just a moment, not just the future on earth. And once Christ has met all of our needs and we've put our faith and trust in him and, and we're secure, not just for now, not just for this lifetime, but for eternity, now I'm free to really love somebody in the way that they should be loved and to receive love in a healthy way, not as one pursuing idols, but as one receiving the gift from the giver of all good gift and being able to enjoy it. And then I'm also ready to actually love and to learn how to communicate in a way that puts other people first, that, that is sensitive to the needs of others rather than always trying to get my needs sense, uh, filled. Interestingly enough, as we learn to serve our spouse, our children, um, our friend, other people in a, in, a, in a healthy way, communicate love as appropriate in healthy uh, relationships, we're going to uh, receive it back more often than not in a healthy way. And, and as we try to be selfish and me-centered, it just begins to break down. And it's never going to work that way. And that is the way God has laid it out for us. So Jesus has pursued us in that. I love these, four, these five love languages. He has expressed his love to us in that he has given us his word. We can trust his word. He's expressed his love in that he has gifted us with salvation. He's expressed his love in that he has served us. He has come and he has washed our feet. He has laid down his life for us. The shepherd has laid down his life for the sheep. He has given us time. He's created the space that we could come boldly into the throne room and enjoy an intimate relationship with the Father through prayer. He is available to us. The, the, the time that we spend with God is contingent about how, how much time we're willing to pursue him. But he has made it all available. He has all the time we could possibly ever fill available for us. And he has reached out, and he has touched us through the cross. He has touched us through the cross. There are scars on his hands and his feet because of his blood that was shed for us as he has pursued us in an intimate relationship. He is the perfect lover. He is the perfect man. He is the perfect husband. And to him we look for hope. Let's pray.